everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Colfax, and I'm here with a couple that I literally have been trying to get on this podcast for years now, probably more my fault than theirs, but uh, I've got Zach Shimmer and Chelsea Bunch, two of my good friends, and uh, Zach, especially a guy that I've learned a ton from, spent a lot of time with, somebody I really respect and look up to, and uh, somebody that I can't wait for you to get to hear his story. And obviously, Chelsea, I'm really excited for them to get to hear your story as well. So Zach is, uh, in addition to being my friend, he is on staff with a ministry called Hope is Alive. He's the regional program director and uh, has been involved in starting a lot of their new projects and now is in Kansas City uh, pioneering some new ministry opportunities up there. Chelsea's also worked for the ministry and they are recently engaged. And uh, I'm really excited for you guys to get to share your stories on the podcast today. So thanks for taking the time. Um Chelsea, I want to shift and hear a little bit of your story as well. And uh, one of the things I think is just so cool about the two of you together is, and, and this is true with any couple, but just the the profound way that God had worked in your lives individually, and then the way that God is now working in your lives together, both in the sense of the ministry, Hope is Alive, but also in the sense of your ministry as two people and as a couple uh, with the community that you have. So maybe let's start at the beginning for you. Tell us a little bit of your story. All right. So I was born in the very small town of Stillwell, Oklahoma. Um, and growing up, you know, my dad left at a really young age. And growing up, I watched him go off and start a new family Um and so I would always see him, you know, Stillwell's a very small town. And so everybody knows everybody. So I would always see him at school events, like sports, like all this stuff. But he was always there for um, my sisters. Like he always showed up for my little sisters, never showed up for me. And so growing up, I just always had this uh, feeling like, or like sense in the back of my head of like, I wonder... Um, why, why am I not good enough? Why am I not enough? Why didn't he stay for me? Why, why did he need to go start this new family? He already had one that he left. And so growing up, I always had this feeling, but I was kind of able to push it to the side and just, uh, you know, let it stay there. I never let it really take a hold of me or like, but when I was about 10 years old, you know, my mom remarried when I was six. And when I was about 10, they asked me if they wanted my stepdad to adopt me. And at this time I was like, oh yeah, that sounds really cool. But then I was like, but what if it hurts my real dad's feelings? Like what if he doesn't like it? What if it hurts his feelings? Given he hadn't been in my life, like he didn't show up. My stepdad showed up for everything. He was at the school event sitting in the stands. He was watching all my basketball games and softball games. Um, and, but I still had that feeling of, I don't want to hurt his feelings. And so I remember we start going through all the court stuff and doing all this. And I remember them saying, you know, if your dad shows up on the court date, he has the final say, he can stop this and you won't be adopted. And so the whole time I'm thinking, oh, wow, he's going to show up and stop this. And I won't have to hurt his feelings. I won't have to tell my mom, I don't want my stepdad to adopt me because it will hurt hers and my stepdad's feelings. And so this whole time I'm thinking, you know, my dad's going to show up. He's going to show up and save the day. And, you know, I, I won't have to hurt anyone's feelings. 
And so I remember the day came and we are sitting at the courthouse, sitting out in the hallway, waiting to be called into the courtroom. And I remember sitting there and I was just watching the stairs, just waiting for him to walk up the stairs. And he never did. And we go in the courtroom and I'm, I'm still holding on to hope that he's going to make this like elaborate entrance into the courtroom and like save me and save the day. And, you know, I'm sitting there, I'm watching the door. I'm not even paying attention to what the judge is saying, what my mom and my stepdad are saying, because I am just so focused on him coming in to save the day and he never showed up. So I remember that feeling that I had it tucked aside of not being good enough, not being worthy, like what's wrong with me? They just came flooding. And, you know, this day that could have been so great, my stepdad adopting me turned into what is kind of like my black hole moment was a moment where everything changed. Like all of these feelings that I had, you know, had tucked away and hid for so long were now, uh, like surfacing and just kind of like flooding me. And after that, everything I did was kind of to be accepted by others. Like I kind of turned into this chameleon of, I wanted to make sure that I was worthy to everyone, that I felt like I was enough, that I had all these friends and all these people around me just so I could feel like I was worthy. I kind of became a people pleaser um, I was a teacher's pet. I was friends with everyone. And it was really all just because I, I didn't want to have to feel like I wasn't good enough, or I didn't want those feelings that had come up with my dad to come up anymore. Like I didn't want, sorry, I didn't want to, uh, you know, feel that anymore. And so growing up, I always, that was just, what I did from then on was I was a people pleaser. I was a perfectionist. I made sure I looked good on the outside. I had all these friends, but really on the inside, I was so broken. And um, I remember when I was 15, I took my first drink of alcohol. And at that moment, I was like, oh my gosh, I don't care what anyone thinks of me right now. And all those feelings that, you know, I kept tucked inside, I was just numb of those. And I was like, this is so great. I don't have to feel those feelings anymore. And so after I took that first drink, it was like, that's all I did. Like I drank to numb. I didn't want to feel anything anymore. And from then on, it kind of progressed into harder drugs. And by the time I was 21, I was fully addicted to opiates and methamphetamine. And I remember at this point, I had just burnt every bridge with my family, with my friends, all this like work that I had done when I was younger to like build this whole huge friend group and like always please my family. I completely switched to the other side and wanted nothing to do with any of them. And I think that hurt and that shame that was inside of me, it was just kind of, I just, I didn't want them to be a part of it. I didn't want to hurt them. I, so I kind of pushed them away um, to where they really wanted nothing to do with me either. And so by the time I was 21, I was, you know, fully addicted to drugs and I was also homeless. Like none of my family would allow me to stay with them anymore. 
Um, you know, I'd lied to them, I'd stole from them. And so they were kind of just done with me at this point, which honestly, I, that's what I like. I wanted that. I didn't want my burdens to become their burdens. And so I would kind of just like couch hop wherever I could, uh, friends that would still talk to me. I, there were more friends that I made in my addiction. <laughs> um, I slept in my car a lot. And I remember one night I had slept in my car and I used, the thing is, is I used to sleep in church parking lots in my car because I felt like they were the safest, <laughs> which was probably yeah. a God thing. Even though, you know, I had turned from God at this point for summer, he was still looking back. I realized he was still showing up in little ways like that. Mm-hmm. And so I slept in my car that night. I woke up and I'm sitting there and I'm withdrawing from opiates and I'm just thinking, what, what is my life? Like, what am I doing? I don't have any goals. I have no ambition. Um, I have no family, no friends. And I remember thinking like, this is either going to be the rest of my life or I'm going to end up dying from this. And so I remember kind of just sending up like this little foxhole prayer of, you know, hey, God, if you're listening, um, I need help. I don't know if you're listening because, you know, I haven't talked to you in a while. But <laughs> uh, if you're out there, like, I need help. And uh, it wasn't 10 minutes later, I get a text from my mom. And she's like, hey, why don't you come over to the house for a little bit? Which at this point was really weird because we hadn't talked in months. And so I'm like, okay, I'll come over. I was like, that sounds like a meal and a shower. So I'll go for it. (laughs) So I drive out there and, you know, I'm walking inside and I look terrible. And so my mom, they actually rescued this little dog one time off a bridge. Her name was Bridget, but she was just like this little scruffy looking ugly dog. But my mom uh, compares me to that dog when I came walking in the house that day was I just looked like this little scruffy homeless dog. (laughs) And so I walk in and she just is standing there waiting on me. And she just looks at me and she's like, are you done? She's like, I know everything that's been going on. And I just want to know if you're, if you're ready. And so the first thought that came in my head was, like defense like immediately the walls went up and I was like I don't know what you're talking about I'm fine and she just like looked at me and she just like just had tears rolling down her face and at that moment I was like I can't do this anymore and I was just like yes I'm ready and at this point like I'm crying she's crying we're hugging and I remember that's the moment I I just realized you know that little foxhole prayer that I had sent up and then my mom texted me, it was like just God working um, in all these crazy ways. And I, that I didn't even realize at the time because I, I had turned from him because, you know, when, when I was in my addiction, I didn't feel like I was worthy of God's love. All the shame and guilt I carried, like I didn't think that, uh, you know, he would really care about me over here doing all, doing drugs and partying and doing all this stuff. And so I had kind of turned from him, but I realized at that time, you know, it wasn't just my one little foxhole prayer that I sent up that, you know, that God showed up. It was 
all of the prayers that my family had prayed for me before that. And then him just waiting on me to send that one prayer and, and surrender and be willing to do whatever it takes to get myself out of that situation. And so that day, I remember my mom saying, you know, I have this place set up for you. We can go there tomorrow. It's a treatment center. They're going to take you. So all this time I was out running around, she was actually like, had got me a treatment center, called them, had all this stuff set up that I could go there the next day. And so I went to treatment the next day at Valley Hope and Cushing. And uh, first off, she told me it was a, it was a detox. So I was planning on a three-day detox and we get there and Uh it's a 30-day treatment facility. But at this point I was like, all right, I was willing to do whatever it took just you know, to stay sober, to, to get clean. So anyway, you know, while I was at Valley Hope, Hope is Alive started bringing out meetings and stuff. And, you know, they had just opened their first Tulsa women's home. So they were uh, coming in and promoting that. And I remember listening and I was kind of thinking, oh, that sounds kind of cool. But, you know, I don't know. I fully um, anticipated on getting out of treatment and going back to Stillwell. And more than likely falling right back into the same stuff, the same friend groups that I had before. And I remember I was talking to my counselor and she was like, why don't you just give it a try? Just, you know, try it out, see how it goes. And I was like, uh, you know, let me call my mom and see what she thinks. So I called my mom and she's like, yeah, I think you should give it a shot. Cause if you come back to Stillwell, you can't live with us. And I was like, what? <laughs> I am 30 days sober and you won't let me move back in with you. (laughs) And so I was like, okay, okay, I'll I'll try it out. I'll give it three months. I'm just going to try it for three months and see how it goes. So after my 30 days at Valley Hope, I went door to door um, to Hope is Alive. And I remember walking in and there was just, there's girls everywhere and they're hanging out and they're having fun. And I was just like, what is happening here? Like, and I wanted to be a part of it, but I was so nervous and so scared. It was like, I had never lived anywhere outside of Stillwell, which is like a population of 2000. <laughs> and then I moved into this house with 15 other women. And, you know, I was terrified, but they all, they just all had like this light in their eyes and they were all happy and smiling and having fun. And I was like, I, I want that. I want to be a part of this. Um, I don't know how it'll happen, but I want, I want that light in my eyes. And later on, I realized that it wasn't just joy. It wasn't just happiness. It was like the Holy spirit moving through them. That, that was that light. That was, uh, uh, what was happening with them, but I didn't know how to, uh, get that light. I didn't know where to go from there. I didn't know how to be happy. I didn't know really how to love these girls or like be a part of this but I remember them just like loving me right where I was at like they didn't care if I had 30 days sober three minutes sober it it didn't matter like they loved me right where I was at and I remember them telling me you know just jump into this program like just give it your all see where it takes you and so I did and I I still fully was thinking I'm going to stay for three months, but for these three months, I'm going to give it my all. And I ended up staying for 19 months 
And during that entire 19 months, like I went to every event, I went to all the stuff that Hope is Alive had to offer. Like I was both feet in. I wanted, I wanted everything that it had to offer for me. And while at Hope is Alive, that I rededicated my life to Christ. That's where I, uh, you know, kind of started to build that foundation of my relationship with Christ was in Hope is Alive. And from then on, like I was able to be that girl that when other girls came in the house for the first time, it was like, I was the one with the light in my eyes. I was the one that, you know, got to sit down with them and talk about Jesus and talk about what the program has to offer and what it can do for them. And that was just the best feeling was getting to, you know, mentor the next girl that came in or disciple the next girl that came in and just allow them like, you know, hope is live is great. Like everything they do is great, but then always allowing, like always getting to point it back to Jesus. Like, even though like we're doing all this stuff, like it's really, it's God working through these homes, working through this ministry that is allowing us to stay clean and sober, live in these homes, do all this amazing stuff. Well, one of the things that I just, I wish we, I wish people could see you even as you're telling the story, because, you know, when you said you walked into that house and you saw the light in those other girls' eyes and you didn't feel that in that moment because, uh, you know, it was that process of discovering what is really going on here. And it was more than just sobriety, even though I don't want to downplay that at all, but it was also the work of the Holy Spirit um, coming through them. It was that abiding joy that comes in knowing Christ. And that's what I say. I wish people could see now, because if they saw you now, they would see that because that is, that's you now. And that's, you know, a tribute to how Christ worked in your own heart and uh, went from that person that was really timid to go into the house, you know, initially becoming the woman who is excited to welcome and disciple and walk with uh, the people that were coming in uh, after you've been there for a few months. And so, you know, one of the things about your story that I think is just so powerful is the way that God he took a circumstance that every single person listening to your story is just crushed. I mean, I feel like a, a lump in my throat when I heard you talk about your family growing up. And then the, the picture of what sin is and what sin does is so potent in that story because sin always promises a return that it can't deliver. Mm-hmm. You know, like when you said it for that brief moment, all of a sudden, you really were free from the expectations and the opinions and the way that other people thought about you. And that's exactly the way that sin works, whether it's substance abuse, whether it's um, pride, whether it's anything that we struggle with, it's the little bitty lie that it can solve your problems and it can't. And, uh, you know, a lot of people say if, if sin weren't momentarily fun, nobody would do it. You know, and that, that's the thing you read that in the Bible, like in, in Hebrews chapter 11, it says, you know, Moses decided not to indulge the momentary pleasures of sin. It's like we sometimes pass over that there are momentary pleasures of sin, but there's always the there's always the decline afterwards in that what alcohol promised or what drugs promised, it actually continued to undo. 
you know, instead of giving it, it actually took from you. And then you see what happens when you meet Christ and it's not easy and it's not quick, you know, and it's, it's not always the way we we would imagine, but even, you know, at this point in your story where you're still in the house, it's the process of restoration has begun that one of the things Christ always delivers on the things that he promises, whether that's restoration, whether that's reconciliation, whether that's wholeness, whether that's freedom. And, uh, I just think that's such a powerful part of your story because the things that you really wanted and were seeking after, you went through every available option and found that really Christ was the one who had been holding those things and had been working in the same way that we talked about with Zach and had been working in these small and kind of what seemed like insignificant ways at the time that ended up being huge ways in in the long run. So Talk to us a little bit about once you're in the house and you're coming alive. I mean, we can even hear that in your voice. Uh, What did God do next? Around this time, like I'm coming up close to a year. And I remember it was December of 2018. You know, I get a text from Allie and she's like, hey, is there a time where you can meet with me and Lance? And so my first thought is, oh, my gosh, I'm in trouble. What did I do? They saw me flirt with Zach. <laughs> I'm in trouble. And, um, you know, we set up a time. I went in to meet with them. And, you know, this whole time I was at Hope is Alive, I never expected, you know, to work for Hope is Alive. And I always wonder, um, you know, what what was God going to do next? What what was the rest of my life going to look like? Where, like, what was, what was going to come after Hope is Alive? And so I remember I went in. We sat down and they were just like, hey, we want to offer you a job. We want you to come work for Hope is Alive. And I was like, oh, yes, absolutely. Like all, all this time that I've been praying, you know, God, what what's next? I uh, like I want to know what happens after this. Like what where do I go next? And it was just like he's like, you're going to work for Hope is Alive. And although like my job didn't look like Zach's job. I could never do Zach's job on out on the front lines. Like I got to do like the behind the scenes office work, um, which was what I enjoy. That's what I like to do. I like the behind the scenes work. I'm not good on the front lines like Zach is, <laughs> but I realized like, you know, while in the house, you know, I got to disciple to other women and like, I got to serve that way. But I realized that that's really where I was like lacking in my faith was like serving. And so, although, you know, I didn't serve like Zach served, it's like I got to serve the behind behind the scenes to the ministry that serves 180 residents. You know, that is where, you know, I really got to serve. I really got to do God's work was the behind the scenes, you know, for Hope is Alive, for the ministry. And also that is where me and Zach started dating was when I came onto staff for Hope is Alive And, uh, you know, I worked there for a year and a half before, you know, we moved up here to Kansas City. Um, But during that year and a half, that is where I was able to grow so much in my faith, so much in, you know, who I am in Christ. And um, when it when that year and a half was up and we were moving up here to Kansas City, I remember, you know, we talked to Lance and Allie. 
And they were kind of like, well, you know, what does that look like for your job? And uh, I remember thinking, you know, I've had my time here. You know, I've been able to grow so much here and I want to give that opportunity to somebody else. I want the next girl to be able to come in and, you know, serve this ministry and work in this ministry. And because, you know, it, it makes you grow being in that position. It really allows you to grow and step into new responsibilities. And so I was just super excited, you know, that that my time was up there. Now that you guys are looking at starting your own family, getting married in a new city, in the city, Zach, where you were talking about that is really significant in your story. What does it mean to you or how do you think about generational sin or breaking the chains of things that have gone before you and starting afresh? Yeah, man. I mean, it means so much to me. That's uh, something that's been on my heart for really the entirety of my walk with the Lord. Um, just the determination of, Hey, this, this is it. You know, I'm, I gotta be the one to break those generational chains to, um, break, to turn that lineage from a lineage of alcoholism and addiction to a lineage of, uh, men and women walking, uh, arm in arm with the Lord. And, uh, you know, Chelsea and I, we're, we're getting married November 7th. It's coming up here, uh, really, really soon. And uh, a lot of fear comes with that, you know, because of what the past has been um, in, in my lineage and hers as well. And, you know, just a lot of excitement and, and at the same time, because um, I know the I know the Lord's brought us to it and I know that he's going to um, also bring us through it. And man, uh, it's just super exciting, man. It's it's a journey. And I believe that the joy is most definitely in the journey. Yeah. And I, I just love that, you know, you're not bound to your past, whether that's individually or generationally, that uh, God is able to free us from those things, that our that our past is not our future. It's not our destiny. Mm-hmm. And uh, that he is in the business of recreating. That's one of the coolest things about Hope is Alive is that Second Corinthians 517, that if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. And I know in a lot of the sins that we struggle with, it's not a clean break a lot of times. And I know that sobriety is that way too. Uh, for a lot of people, it's not a matter of going to treatment once or even twice, but it's a struggle. And I don't want for a moment to to make these stories sound like it was just straight down and then straight up. You know, it's life is really complicated and messy and fighting sin is really messy. But that if anyone is in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has passed and the new is gone is not an exaggeration. It really is the truth of what God is doing uh, in our lives as believers. And I think you guys' story both display that. And I think your lives display that. And I too, I'm really excited to see what God continues to do as you guys get married in you know five weeks and uh, walk together with the Lord. You know, as maybe a closing thought on this, I just want to ask, both of you guys having gone through Hope is Alive and now having worked and ministered to uh, the ministry and, and to people that you're walking with, I know there's people listening that struggle with addiction. And I know there's people who have family members who are probably in similar spots to some of the people that you've mentioned in your stories. What should they do? But then too, I just think about like, what if, you know, Chelsea, your mom right before she had texted you was listening to this podcast 
you know, or what if Zach, your sister was mm-hmm. listening to this podcast, what do you say to them? You know, having seen this all the way around, having seen a lot of people walk through these situations and stuff, what do you say to those people? I think bottom line, man, is that there is hope, you know, no matter where your loved one is at um, in their struggle with addiction, there's hope. Um, you know, there's there's things you can tangibly be doing right now while not enabling them uh, to, to be ready to help them when they're ready. You know, there are so many resources out there and you can prepare yourself by getting those resources. Um, but ultimately, you know, in, in some instances, you might have to love them from afar, you know, um, my addiction was able to go on for as long as it did because I had some enabling loved ones in my life. Right. Um, but it wasn't until I didn't have, you know, anywhere to turn except to help, um, that I was fully able to find recovery. Um, you know, I would say just as difficult as it, as it may be, you got to give it over to God. You know, if you, if you have a loved one struggling, if you have, a loved one that's in the midst of the darkness of addiction, you have to give it over to God. Um, your, your well-being, your spiritual well-being, your emotional health, um, all those sort of things, they cannot be contingent on whether your loved one is clean and sober. You know, um, We can plant the seeds, but it's God who's going to water them. And so we can be prepared with the resources. We can be prepared to point them towards hope and towards Jesus when the opportunities arise, but God's got to do the work. God's going to do the work. And I've seen it happen time and time again. Um, the se- seemingly impossible situations uh, where God's intervened and brought about a radical recovery story, man. Um, and it can happen for your loved one too. Um, you know, God's going to do it again. He'll do it again. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.